All right, well, we have reached the end of chapter 24, to which I'm sure there are a few hallelujahs right now. And at the same time, we're only about halfway through the Olivet Discourse. So that begs the question, what is Jesus going to cover now in the second half of this discourse on his return at the end of the age and so on? Well, the answer is going to be a little confusing because Jesus is going to teach us everything that he's already taught us again, but now in parables backwards. Let me explain what I mean. First, the parables that are in Matthew 25 are pretty well known. You probably heard them or read them at some point in the past. And I think it's for that reason that people often disagree about what these parables mean. But thankfully, the Lord has done us a favor in the way that he's organized the parables and presented them in this chapter. And in the way that he's presented them, they are actually easier to understand. Because in this chapter, he is going to present the parables on his second coming and on his coming for the church in a chiastic structure, in the form of a chiasm. Now, you may have heard me talk about chiasms at some point in the past, and it's not that hard to understand. A chiasm is a literary form, a type of outline, but unlike the style of outline that we typically use, a chiasm organizes its points in a back and forth pattern. So each point in the narrative is covered once from beginning to end, but then the chiasm takes those same points a second time and covers them in reverse order. And the juncture where the order reverses is intended to draw our attention to the main point of the outline. Now, it's easier to understand what I'm describing by seeing it than just to hear me describe it. So I want to show you the chiastic structure that Jesus uses in the Olivet Discourse in a couple of slides. First, The chiasm starts in chapter 24 at about verse 15 when Jesus begins describing his second coming at the end of the age. And then Jesus immediately follows that with a discussion about the judgment that will happen for all unbelievers who are on the earth at the time of his second coming. You remember when Jesus was teaching on that in chapter 24, he said all the tribes of the earth would look up and see Christ coming in his glory and they would mourn, which was a way of saying they will recognize that this is not a good thing for them, that the Lord they have rejected is now coming back. That was in verse 30 of chapter 24. Then the next thing you see in chapter 24 is Jesus introducing this different type of return, which he called the coming of the Lord. And that, of course, we learned is the rapture. And coming of the Lord, we learn, is very different from the second coming. It's going to be unpredictable, unannounced, and sudden. All those things were different than what we learned about for the second coming. But most importantly, we learned that the coming of the Lord is a day only for believers. And in fact, unbelievers on earth at that time won't even know it's happening until after it's already finished. Then we also learned at the very end of chapter 24, last week, that following the coming of the Lord, there is a believer's judgment, a judgment for those that Jesus has received from the earth. He will evaluate our service to him and we will be rewarded for good service. So, if you notice in the pattern already, just as there is a judgment for unbelievers after the second coming, there is likewise a judgment for believers after the rapture. And of course, the rapture comes first in the chronology of the end times. But this is the pattern in which Jesus presented it. Now, as we move into chapter 25, we're going to find Jesus using parables to cover exactly the same material again, 
And because we see a repetition now in the text, that alerts us to look for a chiastic structure. And when you map out the topics that we're going to see in chapter 25, you notice that the chiasm's most important feature is immediately evident. And the important key feature of a chiasm is recognizing that as the reversal happens, as you go back into the repetition, everything takes an opposite order. You go in and then you come out. That means that the first parable of chapter 25 will cover the same material as the last section of chapter 24 and so on. Why am I telling you this? Well, it guides our interpretation because we know our interpretation of the second half of the chiasm must line up with our interpretation of the last section of 24 and so on. On the chart you see I've numbered them to show you that. So number two at the start of 25 has to match your interpretation of number two at the end of chapter 24. And that's how chiasms help guide you. That's their purpose. And it's also why you often find incorrect interpretations of this passage. Because if you don't recognize you're looking at a chiasm, you're not prepared for the reversal. And so you may make the mistake of assuming that the whole narrative of the Olivet Discourse simply proceeds chronologically, as if everything you're reading happens one after another in the course of time. But that's not the way it works at all. Jesus did not organize this chronologically. He organized it chiastically, which means there will be a turnaround at some point, and then you're going backward. And as you look at the way this back-and-forth structure appears, it takes on this sort of front-to-back appearance visually as well. In fact, that's how a chiasm gets its name. You know that as the two halves have to match an interpretation, they allow you to put this little sideways structure together that resembles the Greek letter chi, at least to some, and so they call it a chiasm. All right, now that's a little geeking out on Bible interpretation for you. I grant you that, but you should see now why it's important to the way we interpret. It's gonna completely guide our interpretation of the parables. Knowing which section we're looking at in chapter 25 gives us a hint as to which section in chapter 24 should give us the same interpretation. And that's the way we're gonna study 25, looking back on 24 and matching them up. So let's go into chapter 25 and to the first parable. This is in chapter 25, verse one. Jesus says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with the lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too, so go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the feast and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then for you do not know the day nor the hour. All right, so now we know that this parable is teaching about the coming of the Lord. Why? Well, because it's paired up with the topic that ended chapter 24. 
But let's say for argument's sake, you didn't recognize that there was a chiasm at work or you never even heard of a chiasm. Nonetheless, you could still see clearly by the details of the parable that Jesus is describing the rapture. First, he says this parable is about the kingdom of heaven, which is a reference to the believer's future life in the kingdom. Secondly, he says this is a parable of a bride waiting for her groom to arrive for her on her wedding day. And you remember from our study of the rapture in chapter 24 that Jesus uses exactly the same analogy in John 14 when he describes the coming of the Lord. He said the coming of the Lord would be like a groom appearing suddenly to claim his bride and to take her away. So that's two reasons. And then there's a third one, and this one you may have missed. Do you notice there are 10 women waiting to be married in this parable, but do you notice the parable only mentions a single groom? Now you would expect 10 grooms for 10 brides, but in verse one, verse five, verse six, verses 10, 11, and 12, all of those verses reference only a single bridegroom, singular. And that tells us as well, this is a parable about the bride of Christ, which is made up of many individuals, waiting for our one groom, Christ at the rapture. So all the details of the parable initially point us to a topic of the rapture. And that connection to the chiasm and to the section of chapter 24, well, that just gives us added assurance and confirmation that we're on the right track. So looking at the parable, Jesus refers to these 10 women as virgins. Now a virgin is the Bible's term for a single woman of marrying Age And why is she called a virgin? Well, because a woman, and a man for that matter, are to be expected to refrain from sexual relations prior to marriage. Sex outside of marriage is sin. So from the perspective of a God-fearing culture, all unmarried women are virgins, or they should be. By the way, I would add that God's expectations for purity before marriage have not changed, and so virginity is still the standard for godliness before marriage. Meanwhile, these virgins have gone outside, it says, to wait for their bridegroom, which would indicate that the virgins are expecting that groom at any time, and they're eager to see him. But the exact arrival time of the groom is still unknown, and the virgins are simply waiting. They're simply watching in anticipation. They're not sure when he's going to come, and because it's night, we're told that they have brought with them lamps, which would help light the way, and would also help them see and find the groom when he arrives. Now, notice in verse two, though, Jesus says half of these virgins are wise, but half are foolish, and the ones who are wise are wise because they've brought oil for their lamps, and the ones who are foolish have not. And when Jesus uses the term wise or foolish, he isn't just talking about their actions. That is a Bible way of speaking about the heart. In Zechariah chapter four, we're told that oil in a lamp is the Bible's preferred picture for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And then Romans goes on to teach us that all who are saved, who are sons and daughters of God, are those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our seal of redemption. So Jesus, when he uses the term wise, for those who have oil, and foolish, for those who don't have oil, is describing the state of their hearts. According to the Psalms, those who are wise are those who have received instruction from the Lord. They have hearts of understanding. The foolish are those who have no fear of the Lord. They have hearts of wickedness and evil. So the wise virgins are those that possess a good spiritual nature. 
The foolish possess an evil spiritual nature. And so simply put, if you have oil in your lamp, you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, which is a way of saying you are saved, you are believing, and if you lack oil, you lack the Holy Spirit, you're not saved, you're not believing, you're evil. And so you have five believing virgins who are prepared for the Lord's return because they possess the light of the Spirit, if you will, and they are ready to see their groom. And then you have unbelieving virgins who lack oil, which means they lack the Holy Spirit, so when the groom comes, they will not see him. Remember, we learned this earlier when we studied the rapture, that when the rapture comes, unbelievers won't even see that Jesus arrives. He stays in the clouds, and that's that's consistent here with the pictures of the parable. So if five of these virgins without oil are not believers, that begs the question, why are they being called virgins then? Why are they part of the same group as those who have the oil? Well, the answer is it's common in parables for there to be characters in the parable who turn out to be imposters in the end. That's a common feature in parables. So as the parable begins, there are all 10 called virgins. They all appear to be the same, but later events in the parable will reveal that it is not all as it seems. Some of them are not who they think they are or who they claim to be. And in this case, Jesus is contrasting the future of those who are his by faith with the future of those who are not believing. Moving into the parable again in verse five, Jesus says, the groom doesn't come back as soon as the virgins expect. I'm sure that's probably common for most. That is, we always want the good things we're looking forward to sooner than they actually come. So as the virgins are waiting, they grow sleepy. Of course, you can't be watching while you're sleeping. So what we're learning is their vigilance is waning. And at some point later in the night, at midnight, they are awoken by a shout. The bridegroom is approaching. Someone is announcing his arrival. And so now is the time. Turn on those lamps. Get your light ready. Make sure you can see him and he can find you. But now the virgins who did not bring enough oil realize their light is going to go out. It won't be there long enough. It won't be strong enough. Suddenly, they're unprepared for the groom's return and they're worried and they're desperate. So They ask the others, hey, give me some of your oil so we can all do this together. But the virgins with the oil say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. There's no way for us to do this. We don't have enough to give you. Go back to the source. Go to the dealer. Go to the place where oil comes from. Get your own. But at that point, it's too late. By the time they were to go find that oil, purchase it, get it in their lamp, come back, and all the rest, the groom would have come and gone. He, in fact, takes the five who are prepared, and he enters into the bridal chamber. And then he closes the door. Now what's interesting at this point in the story is that the other five versions don't go get the oil and then come back and join in. They try to go in without the oil. They realize they don't have time. They realize that there's only a moment to spare. So they go straight to the door that's now closed and they ask to be let in despite having no oil. And the Lord responds to them saying, I don't know you which is a way of saying he doesn't recognize them now as his wives. He has his wife. They are not part of what is going on. Now, at that point, with all the detail laid out, it's easy to see how this story illustrates the day of the rapture as we learned it back in chapter 24. We learned then that when the Lord comes, he will instantly receive to himself those who belong to him by faith, the church. And we also learned those who are not with him by faith are left behind because Jesus doesn't know them. And when this moment comes, it comes so quickly, there will not be time for those who do not yet know Jesus 
to see the events unfolding and decide in that moment, oh, I guess I better believe now too since I don't want to miss out on this opportunity. No, that's not going to be possible. The event happens so suddenly and invisibly to the unbeliever that by the time those left behind realize what they've missed, the door, so to speak, will be shut. So let's use our chiasm now just as a double check on our interpretive work because as I said earlier, what we're learning in this parable should pair up, should match up to what we learned at the end of chapter 24 in Jesus' teaching. Back in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 41, Jesus said, the coming of the Lord will be like the days of Noah. That is, people will be unaware that the return of Christ is near until one day he said there'd be two working in the field or two in the mill and then one would be taken, one would be left. And after Noah entered the ark safely, you remember we learned that he had the door closed by God and then those who wished to enter after that point could not. The door was shut and no one could open it even if they had wanted to. And in all of those details, we find a perfect comparison to the parable. In the parable, what did we find? Sudden arrival of the groom. Some of the virgins were not ready, were not expecting him. After he arrives, how many of them are taken? Exactly half, just as we saw in Jesus' teaching. Two in the field, one remaining. Two in the mill, one remaining. Half again. And then, in the parable, the ones who were left behind want to get in, but they're told the door is shut, it will not open. Again, all of these details line up and give us greater confirmation to know we're on the right track in our interpretation. So then I should ask, what is the point now of the parable? Well, Jesus gives us the point of the parable at the end, in verse 13. He says, be on alert for the return of your Lord. But given what we learned in the parable, what does it mean to be on alert in this case? Well, who was alert in the parable and who was not? Those five virgins who had oil were ready while the five who lacked the oil in their lamps were unprepared for the return of their groom. So the point is, make sure you have oil. Or in the literal sense of the meaning of the parable, make sure you have the Holy Spirit. That is, those who are ready for the Lord's return are those who are believing. Those who are saved are ready and wise and prudent. But those who are not saved at that moment will be found foolish and unprepared and left behind. Until you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, friends, nothing else matters. There is no kingdom future for that person. There is no eternal glory. There is no reward possible. There's no use talking to that person about how to stop sin in their life if they are unbelieving. That's like asking a pig to stop liking mud. It's not possible. Not in that state. It's also not of much value to talk to unbelievers about the signs of the end of the age. It's not going to change their heart, not by itself. There's no reason to encourage them to try serving the Lord. You can't serve a Lord you don't know. There is nothing else to tell someone who does not know the Lord as Savior except know the Lord as Savior. If you do not possess the Spirit, Jesus says he does not know you, and if he does not know you, he is not going to rescue you. And how do you get this oil? How do you get the Spirit? Well, you have to go to the source, just like we learned in the parable. That is, you can't get it through someone else. You don't get what someone else has by association in this case or by community. You know, you don't hang around Christians so that you can become Christian. You're not going to, to get it through osmosis. It doesn't just happen 
You can't attend church or small group and think that, oh, I'm in community, as we like to say today, so I must be good to go. No, that in itself will not save you. And I should add, your spouse might be Christian, but that won't save you. Your kids might be praying for you, but that's not gonna save you. And you might be doing lots of good works, but that's not gonna save you. None of those things are oil. You have to go to the source. You have to go to Christ himself. You have to understand that you are not okay by the way you are now without Jesus. You are not. And despite what you may have heard some people say, God does not love you, and he does not have a wonderful plan for your life if you are not his. That is, the Bible says the wrath of God rests on those who practice sin, and his plan for all those who reject him is not wonderful. It's horrifying. In a future of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of burning and torment. Now, I don't like having to say that, but the Bible says it, so I have to say it. It's the truth. But here's the good news. Jesus is willing and able to save you from that eternal fate if you place your faith in him, if you trust him to pay the price for you. And as you place your faith in him, you receive forgiveness for all your sin. You are washed clean, and you receive the Spirit. And because you have the Spirit, or the oil as it was in the parable, then when he comes on that day that could happen at any moment, you will see him and he will see you and you will be together with him joyfully. And because you don't know when that day is coming, you cannot plan or assume that you can get right with God when the time comes for the Lord to return. You're gonna be like those virgins who are caught off guard and by the time you figure out you needed oil, it'll be too late. There is no better time to confess Jesus as Lord than right now because you don't know if you have any time after now. Salvation cannot wait for another day because there may not be another day and that's the first lesson from this parable. All right, that leads us to the second parable. Verse 14, Jesus says, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Well, that's a longer parable, so we're gonna stop there just to get the introduction. And as we begin our study of this parable, let's take another look at our chiasm, our roadmap here, and I have another slide to show you. Now, this parable, as we already saw, is paired up with the chiasm, with the teaching that Jesus did on the rewards judgment for believers back in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 51. So that should tell us, based on the way chiasms work, that we are now looking at a parable that is going to illustrate how believers are gonna be judged after the rapture, how we'll be evaluated for our service, and how we'll be rewarded for that service. Now here again, if you didn't know anything about chiasms, you could still understand that we were looking at a parable about eternal rewards simply by noting the details in the parable. So let's look look at the parable, let's do that. We have a master now who gives his slave talents to uh, reward this slave uh, for his stewardship or to give him opportunity. And let's talk about a talent for a minute. A talent is actually a unit of weight in Jesus' day, about 130 pounds, actually, or about 60 kilograms. 130 pounds, that's a lot of weight. And a talent of silver is 130 pounds of silver. 
And so if you want to equate that in modern terminology, that would be roughly equivalent to about nine years' salary for a, a laborer in our current economy. So if you think about it, even one talent is a considerable amount of wealth, nine years of a laborer's salary. And in fact, the meaning of the modern word talent finds its origins in this parable because a talent is something that you can use to bring wealth. Anyway, you have three slaves here in this parable, each given differing amounts of wealth, and they're asked to manage it in the master's absence. Each of them has been given what they've received based on their ability, we're told, in verse 15. So apparently the master knows something about his slaves. He recognizes they have differing levels of skill, and so he has assigned wealth based on what he expects they can handle. But regardless of their different assignments here, each slave had the same expectation. Just manage what you've been given responsibly. That was the expectation. And even the slave who received only one talent Remember, that's still a significant amount of wealth, and so it's no small thing to have even one talent to uh, manage. And so all of them are required and expected to give good service with their talents and with their opportunities. So let's see what they do. Verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, You entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the master returns and as you'd expect, he evaluates what the slaves did in his absence to see if they've been faithful in discharging their duties. The slave Given five talents, we're told, has doubled the master's money. So did the slave who was given two talents. They both doubled their money. Now, even though one of those slaves earned a lot more than the other one, he got five back instead of the other guy who got two back. Nonetheless, do you notice they receive exactly the same commendation? In fact, it is word for word identical. They had different starting points, but that's because the master started them differently based on ability. But they both rendered faithful service with what they received and therefore both received the same reward, which in this case was the right to maintain that wealth and manage it as well as manage greater things. So the master's rewards to the slaves were based on faithful service, not based on the magnitude of their achievements. Then you have the third slave. Now the third slave only received a single talent, and that is presumably because he had a low potential to manage things well, and sure enough, he proves the master right 
because he mismanages even the one talent that he was given. He just put a hole in the ground and buried the talent. And when the master returns to evaluate him, he rebukes him for not having given faithful service. He says, now now when he looks at the slave, the slave has an excuse. He's got a ready-made answer. He says, I feared you. Why does he fear this master? Because he says, you're so demanding. You're the kind of guy that would go into a field where you never even planted seed and you'd still expect to find a harvest in that field. That's pretty demanding. And when he gives this excuse, he says, that's why I took no chances. I just buried it and gave it back to you. But notice in verse 26, the master, when he hears this excuse, does not buy it. He does not call the slave fearful or cautious. He calls him wicked and lazy, which means he knows that this slave was not truly concerned with uh, fearing the master's harsh judgment, etc. He was not afraid. He was lazy. And he was uninterested in serving the master. He says, if you had truly been afraid of me and wanted to serve me, you would have at least put it in the bank. Because friends, putting money in the bank is equally safe to putting it in a hole in the ground, generally speaking. So if his only concern was safety, that's what he would have done. No, this guy demonstrates that he does not truly know the master. He did not understand that this is a master who not only is demanding, but he's also willing to reward good behavior. The guy doesn't know who he's serving. So as a result, the master takes this slave's single talent, gives it to the other slaves who had shown the great potential to manage the master's business. So even what this slave thought he had, he never had. And that third slave, as you see at the very end, he's ultimately consigned to outer darkness, to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the classic biblical way of referring to hell, eternal punishment. And here again, you see that common feature in parables that I mentioned earlier, the one where you find a character ultimately revealed to be an imposter at the end. That third slave lacked a true relationship with the master. So even though he's called a slave in the parable, he never was truly a servant to that master. He only knew him in a superficial way, as hard, as unreasonable. He never knew him for the loving, generous man that he was, who was willing to reward. So like the virgins without oil, this slave is a man who was never a part of the master's house. And you can clearly see in this parable that Jesus is describing a reward system for believers. And that is exactly what archaism predicted. Remember, in archaism, we're looking now at the second part of two, that is, the reward that follows the believer after Jesus comes for the church. And these par- this parable matches up perfectly with what we learned at the end of chapter 24. Jesus, our master, expects every believer to serve him well in his absence. He's gone on a journey, so to speak. And a talent in the parable then symbolizes a believer's opportunity to serve the Lord faithfully in some important and challenging way. And the way we're called to serve the Lord will vary from Christian to Christian in keeping with our abilities and our station in life. Jesus calls some believers to bear greater burdens in service. And he calls some believers to make greater sacrifices. And as such, he's managing, you're managing more talents if you are in those circumstances. Nevertheless, we are all his servants. We all have an expectation of serving him. We all have equal opportunity for reward. Your reward will not depend on the magnitude of your effort 
or let's say the magnitude of your outcome, of your success, or where your starting point is. I mean, because you're not Martin Luther or Billy Graham doesn't mean you have less opportunity for reward. You may be starting at a different place than they did, but because of where they started, they had much higher expectations that go along with it. We all are put in our place with a certain opportunity, and it's equal in that sense, equal opportunity. The key is your faithfulness to serve. So how will we be rewarded? What does the reward look like? Can we gain any insight from the parable? Well, this is where we have to be careful. You can't draw conclusions from a parable's details if it's not being made clear to us that that detail is relevant. For example, in the parable, the slaves are rewarded by being able to hold on to their talents, uh, even given more talents as taken from the slave who did nothing. But in our case, we can't say exactly what that means. We can't say what our material rewards will look like in the kingdom. We can't say it's gonna be a 130 pounds of silver, for example. That's just a feature of the parable. But we can say this based on what we know from other scripture. There are material rewards involved. That there is a kind of wealth assigned to us in the kingdom. Jesus tells us this plainly elsewhere in Luke. He says that there is material reward for the believer in the kingdom who serves him well now. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus says this to the church. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. And therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you. And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you what that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or else be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So when Jesus talks here about being faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, he's not talking about money that you come on to through some kind of illicit means. He's just talking about the money of this world. All the money of earth is unrighteous wealth because it's of a sinful place. And in contrast to that, he says, who will entrust true riches to you? The true riches are the wealth of the kingdom. And what he's saying is that what you do now with what you have here will determine what Christ thinks you're capable of handling in the kingdom. He says, if you aren't faithful with what you have here, why would you expect him to entrust true riches to you in the kingdom? That clearly tells us that we are in a current state of internship or assessment where what we do now is going to be evaluated and it will be the basis for which God Christ uses to do uh, more for us in the kingdom. So there is wealth in the kingdom just like there is wealth here in this world. But knowing that, which of the two should we be investing in? Should we be investing in the wealth of this world which we know burns up or should we be storing it up in heaven? That's the sense of what Jesus means when he says store up treasure in heaven. He's saying, live life now so that you might be judged worthy of greater riches in the kingdom. So we have to choose whether we want to serve the interests of this world or whether we want to serve Christ's interests, and not just in wealth, but in every area of our life, because you can't serve both, Jesus says. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. There's your motivation. 
Do everything you do now as if you're doing it for Christ, not for whoever you're serving on earth, because in the end, it'll be Christ who gives you the reward that lasts, and you want him to be pleased with your service more so than anyone here. We don't know what our reward will be exactly, but it doesn't really matter because we know we can trust Jesus to do what is good and what is right and fair. Meanwhile, we have our incentive to do our best at all times because we don't know when he's coming back and we want to be ready. So now what's the point of this second parable? Well, the point of the second parable is believers need to be ready for Jesus' return and we get ready by being found doing what Jesus asked us to do. And he has asked us to serve him He's asked us to go out into the nations and to bring believers into the church through baptism and then teach them to obey Christ. And we each do our own part in our own way toward that end. And in order to help us be ready for that and be equipped for that, Jesus has given us direction in our life, opportunity, uh, a place, uh, a time to live, and he's given us gifts, and he's given us the expectation of faithful service. And some of us, as I said, will bear greater burdens and As a result, we're managing more talents, so to speak. But we all have something to do according to our ability. And we're all gonna be measured according to some scale of faithfulness, and therefore we all have the same opportunity for reward. So it doesn't matter what you do, necessarily, or how hard it is, or how much you achieve, it's about whether you're pleasing Christ. Are you pleasing him with what you're doing? Remember what the writer of Hebrews said when he talked about faith? You've heard this verse before, but perhaps you'll hear it now with a new understanding. Hebrews eleven six. he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Do you realize that the definition of faith is believing first that Jesus is, meaning that he is Lord, knowing that Christ is Lord, yes, but then he says, If you want to please him, you have to have a certain kind of faith to please your master. It starts with knowing he is Lord, but it goes on from there. You also have to be aware that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What he's saying is this. Unless you understand there is a reward system for the believer, you will not be well positioned to please your master. You may have the faith to know him, But that's the first part. The second part is knowing he is prepared to reward you so that you'll be motivated to serve him. Why is motivation so critical to the definition of pleasing faith? Because there is already a motivator inside you that is destined to cause you not to please Jesus. And so the Lord has created another motivator to compensate, to offset that inward motivation you already have. Of course, I'm talking about your sin. You might tell me, well, you know what? I don't like the idea of serving Jesus for the opportunity for reward. That sounds wrong. That, that sounds kind of materialistic. I, I, I think we should just serve Jesus because we love him and he loves us and he saved us. To which I would say, well, you're right. More power to you. Serve Jesus because you love him. That's always the best reason to serve him. So let me ask you, why aren't you doing it? Oh, you see, now there's the problem, isn't it? We all know the answer because we know loving someone isn't always enough to get us to do the right thing. Parents, you love your children, right? And they know you love them, I assume, and you care for them. So wouldn't you expect then that they would just always do what you tell them to do, right? Because love should be enough, right? Oh, but despite the fact that you love them and that they love you, they still disobey you, don't they? Why? Why? Well, it's self-evident why. 
because love is not always enough to motivate our good behavior because sin is also present, playing a role in our motivation. And if we are not careful, we will play to the strengths of our sin rather than letting the Lord lead us. That's the battle of the flesh versus the spirit. And here's the thing to show you how much God loves you. He has not only saved you apart from your works by grace alone, he has also prepared a reward for you to help motivate the good behavior that he asks us to give him, the pleasing service that he is looking for. He isn't simply relying on our love factor to do it because he knows that won't always be enough. So inside every one of us is the motivation to act in an unloving way. And now we learn that Christ has prepared a reward for those who he has saved to give us motivation to overcome that negative instinct and instead do the right thing in selfless service to Christ. And he has not only asked us to do it and given us a reward to do it, but he's also given us the power to do it. Inside us is the resources we need, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the word of God, and spiritual strength and spiritual abilities that he has given us for the purpose of service. So you cannot please him if you do not have faith in him. We learned that from the first parable. And now you're learning that if you want to please him, you must also seek for the rewards he offers to those who serve him well. Those who have faith, who go after the opportunities Christ gives, will serve him in three principal ways. We will serve him in our time, our talent, and our treasure. First, you have to give time to Jesus in service. And time, I would argue, is perhaps our most precious commodity, at least in these days. I think in the modern age, the enemy has been particularly focused on taking away our available time. I think it's interesting how in this age, many of us have plenty of treasure, at least enough, and many of us have talents. Everybody likes to show off their talents now on social media. We're all full of talents now. But you know what none of us seem to have anymore? Is time, because we filled our days every single hour of it. And now, in these particular days, days of quarantine or lockdown or whatever you wanna call it, you may find that for the first time in a while, you actually have more time. You may be busy with some different things, some new things, got kids at home, you gotta work from home on all of that, but at the same time, you're probably not doing as many of your hobbies. You're not spending as much time out in the bars or with friends in in the clubs or going out and doing things recreationally. You may be finding there's gaps now of time that you never had before. Let me ask you this, when this whole season is over, hopefully soon, will you be able to look back on all the weeks and months that you just saw pass by and say to yourself, I really used that time to serve Jesus? Will others be able to see that? Or did you waste it? Did you bury that time like a talent in the ground? And consider how much time you spend every day. Ask yourself, what minutes are you using to serve Jesus and what minutes are you using to serve yourself? And so if you wanna be ready for the Lord's return, take that inventory and make changes. Look at your schedule and adjust it. Remember, Jesus said you can't serve God and wealth at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. And I suggest to us all that a lot of our life is still wrapped up in serving the cause of ourselves in the pursuit of this world, shift time away from those worldly pursuits and toward eternal concerns, and you will be pleasing your master. Secondly, how do you use your talent? I said time, talent, and treasure. Now, I'm not speaking here about talents in the same way that the parable did. We're talking now about your natural and supernatural abilities. We've all been equipped by God with natural-born abilities, and when you came to faith, you received a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit. So are you using those abilities? Are you putting them to work in some way? If you have a gift to pray, are you praying? 
You have a gift to teach, are you teaching? If you have a gift of leadership, are you leading? If you have gifts of encouragement or helps or giving or whatever, is it buried or is it put to work? If you wanna be ready for the Lord's return, be sure to be found using what he gave you when he comes. And I would also add, your assigned spiritual gift, whatever that is, is probably your best indicator of where and how you should be serving in some capacity. So learn what your gift is, step out in some area of service, and make use of it, and you'll please the master. And then finally, as we end, we are called by Scripture to be generous with our treasure for the sake of the kingdom. Now, Jesus said here clearly, you can't serve wealth and serve God at the same time, but you know what? You can use your wealth to serve God. How much you give, where you give it, look, that's between you and the Lord, and I have no interest in knowing it. I'm certainly not gonna tell you what to do with it. That is not a part of the problems being solved. The problem needs to be solved in your own heart. You just need to approach your treasure the same way that you approach your time and your talent. And when it comes to your wealth, you should concern yourself with pleasing Jesus, not yourself. And on the other hand, if you bury your wealth, which in this case I'm saying is hoarding your money or spending it on your own interests or you know, saving it up so you can give it to your ungrateful kids when you die, whatever you think is important, you're not pleasing the master. You're being unfaithful with what he gave you. Friends, there is reward. There is eternal reward for those who serve him well. We should look forward to the day that we see our groom coming. And when that day comes, may we have no regrets, eager to hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. We can all hear those words if we're ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you've shown us clearly in your text what we must do to be ready. First, to those who do not know you, that they would understand now is the time you would move in their hearts right now, Father, and you would lead them to a confession of faith, a sincere recognition that you are Lord and none other can share that name and that they have been given an opportunity to escape the penalty of their sin and they are now ready to receive your grace and I pray, Father, they would do so wherever they are And as they do, Father, I pray that you'd bring believers around them, even in this time of separation, so that they would be counseled, discipled, and loved as part of the body. And for the believers, Father, we've learned, as you've taught us, that we must be ready in a different way. While we also have the necessity of faith, that has come, so now, Father, our focus must be on recognizing you are a rewarder of those who seek you. And we take that motivation to heart so that we will not let our sin nature get in the way and cause us to be selfish with our time or with our talents or with our treasure. But rather, Father, we would devote them and everything in our life to you and you alone, to the measure that you require, to the outcome of faithful service so that you would be pleased in us. Let that be something we keep in our mind every day that we live between now and when we see you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.